Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Um, when Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, a lot of Christians have this idea that, you know, the church is sort of sitting there and hell's trying all its best, but, you know, it'll just not succeed. But a gate is not a weapon. A gate is a defense. The picture is not the church standing still and hell trying to stop it. The picture is the church assaulting hell and hell not being able to keep it off. And so when Jesus gave that promise, by the way, he, he gave the disciples this promise in Caesarea Philippi, which at the time was the most liberal, multicultural, multi, you know, so many different belief systems, the worship of the emperor. Jesus took his disciples to the most intimidating place known in that area to say, see, even in this area, I'll build my church. So you might look at Dublin and be very intimidated, but um, Dublin may have a lot of spiritual weapons, but it's the gates of hell you're going after. Um, It's not on the offensive, hell's on the defensive. And I don't know about you, I don't know how it's all going to pan out in the end in terms of all the particulars. There's an awful lot of prophecy teachers tell us about this, especially recently in the war in the Middle East. I let all the false predictions fall. Um, but I do know this much. I've read the end of the story and we win. Um, in Christ, Jesus is the victor. Um, so 2 Timothy 1 and 2, we, we looked at the pattern of contagious discipleship. And this evening we are considering the power for contagious discipleship. So in many ways we're going under the surface to deal with some issues that may kind of hold us back. Now I want to begin by taking you to the year 2008. Um, What happened in 2008? Well, a number of things happened in 2008, but I want to make you aware of one song that was released in the charts in 2008. Lily Allen, do you remember her? Don't know what she's doing this weather. Not that I ever was in contact with her. But uh, she released a song in 2008 called The Fear. I don't know what's right and what's real anymore. And I don't know how I'm meant to feel anymore. And when do you think it will all become clear? Because I'm being taken over by the fear. And there is a deliberate vagueness about that reflection this idea that there are feelings of fear and anxiety that we can't often pinpoint the precise reason why we're feeling them, but we do feel them and it is radically crippling. It affects everything about our lives. And fear, anxiety are powerful. Um, It's estimated that a third of people will suffer some sort of fear-related season in their life. It's complex. I'm not going to stand here and tar, you know, broad brushstroke any uh, particular aspect of fear and anxiety. But what is unavoidable, it is becoming ever more prevalent and it's becoming ever more prevalent even at a younger age. And one mental health um, services at a well-known university in the U.S. made a, a, an, an acknowledgement about trends that they were seeing within students so I, I'm maybe overlooking deliberately a couple of slides, but there's a quote here to do with the U.S. It begins, guys, seemingly overnight. If that quote's on it, wonderful. Seemingly overnight, the number of students seeking mental health counseling massively expanded 
and the standard mix of teenage issues was dominated by something that used to be relatively rare, anxiety. Now, students going to university all have the same, you know, homesickness, stress, time management, but this was a relatively new thing, this mental health services in the university was saying. Why the change? Well, one psychologist by the name of Jean Twenge has made a suggestion. And she has suggested that 2012 was a turning point. This is what she writes around 2012. I noticed abrupt shifts in teen behaviors and emotional states. The gentle slopes of the lying grass became steep mountains and sheer cliffs. And many of the distinctive characteristics of the millennial generation began to disappear. In all my analysis of generational data, some reaching back to the 1930s, I had never seen anything like it. Now listen to what, just trying to get what Twenge is saying here. She has got data reaching back to the 1930s. I don't know if you know anything about the 1930s, but it wasn't great. There was this thing called a war. And there was a guy who was in power who was trying to exterminate a certain uh, ethnicity of people. And there was teens living through that. And there's generational data of mental health during the 1930s and 40s. And Gene Twain says, something happened in 2012 that spiked fear, even in young people, to an extent even worse than when they lived during the war. So what on earth happened in 2012? And Gene Twain makes an observation. 2012 was the first time that over 50% of mobile phone owners no longer simply used a mobile phone. They used one of these, a smartphone. In fact, this was Gene Twenge's article title, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And she goes on to make some sort of argument that a lot of time in this, a lot of time in the digital world is actually increasing fear in the population. We said this morning that we're all living off a script. When you wake up in the morning, is the first thing you're reading your Bible or your social media? Is it the pages of the Bible or is it the screen? Uh, Mark Sayers speaks about digital anxiety. And he gives this pretty fascinating story of a time that he was on a flight, he was on a connecting flight. And uh, they were in the airport and he remembers, I think it was him, that he said he remembers there was a slight tremor in the, in, in, in the airport toilet. He was popping in for the toilet, didn't really, really think of anything. Well, got on the plane and they made this connecting flight into uh, the, the next location. And as passengers do, as soon as the plane lands, they're turning off flight mode, they're getting there. And then everyone realized, oh my goodness, there was an earthquake where we were. And everyone started freaking out. But if they did the maths, they actually lived through the earthquake, they didn't know it and they get more nervous reading about the earthquake that they were in, and they didn't even feel it. Digital anxiety, fear. Is it not interesting that in the first century, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to a pastor, by the way, a pastor, and this is very encouraging to me, writes to a pastor not simply to talk about Timothy's fear, but to challenge Timothy's fear. As we see in 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now this morning, you may have been convinced about a number of things that we were considering on those four point outlines and the pattern of contagious discipleship. But I wanna propose 
that being convinced theologically is going to be half the battle, but it is only half the battle. That underneath the theological conviction, there are mindsets and there's culture and there's worldviews and there's issues in our lives and our hearts that we simply need broken from if we're going to flourish in the life that God has called us to in contagious discipleship. One of the most prevailing, if you ask anyone who's involved in prayer ministry, deliverance ministry, those that are doing it almost vocationally in the church, they will say that the two most problematic things in the lives of Christians that are keeping them back from flourishing as disciples, the top two are these. Number one is unforgiveness and number two is fear. It's just universal problem in the church. So I want to look at a couple of things tonight. Here's the first thing, the crippling effects of fear because it's in the text. I want to show you that it's in the text. A few weeks ago, I had one of the, someone was supposed to take um, our midweek one of the guys in our church that I'm trying to invest more in and to, to, to see him kind of develop in a teaching gift that he does have. But on the Wednesday afternoon, he had texted me to say that he had taken ill and he wasn't going to be able to take the midweek that night. I already had some pastoral stuff to do in the afternoon, visit, etc. And so um, I said, listen, don't worry about it. And so I really did not get any time whatsoever to have any sort of um, formal midweek prepared. But what I had been doing at this time in preparation for this weekend is I had been constantly reading through 2 Timothy just to get the flow of the thought, try to get the big picture. And so once again, I opened the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I saw something that I had never seen before. I'm sure you know what that's like. You think you know a passage, then you read some, And it all revolved around this phrase for this reason. That phrase appears in verse 6, the beginning of verse 6. Because there's something incredible about Timothy's life that Paul speaks into here. And I want, you to, I want you to track Paul's flow of thought. Paul begins in verses 3 to 5 in this welcome to Timothy. He remembers Timothy's tears. What context that was, we don't know. Was it when Paul was saying goodbye to him and they weren't going to see each other for a while? Probably. But then Paul, and we've noticed this already, Paul mentions Timothy's family background. And he mentions the fact that your mother and your grandmother had a sincere faith. The Greek word for sincere is, if you're transliterated, you would call it an unhypocritical faith. Even unhypocritical, your mother and your grandmother had an unhypocritical faith. And then what does he say to Timothy? And I am sure, I am convinced that it, notice present tense, dwells in you as well. In other words, Paul is in no way questioning whether Timothy's a Christian or not. I know, Timothy, you're saved. I know that God has been faithful down the generations of your family. Now, for this reason, because I know you're saved, fan into flame, the gift of God, that is in you, notice, that is in you by the laying on of my hands. Well, what's all that about? Well, we know in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, that at one stage in Timothy's life, he's already a Christian which means he's already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's the Lord's. But at some point in Timothy's life, a council of elders, presumably discerning a calling in Timothy, laid their hands on him. And Paul was there. Paul's hands were also on Timothy. They prophesied in his life. We read that there was gifts that were imparted to him. Timothy had a subsequent experience with the Lord in his walk. So he saved He's had a subsequent experience in certain terms of calling into ministry or gifting. But notice that even after this, 
Timothy now needs to fan and to flame the gift of God because something had died down. Why? Because according to verse 7, because of fear, that's why. Now, I wonder if anyone here resonates. You're a Christian. Sincere faith. You love Jesus. You've had experiences with Jesus. You've had experiences with the Lord subsequent to being a Christian even that has affirmed you and bolstered you in your faith. And then for some reason, fear has crept in and what used to be a burning passion and service is now just an ember. <coughs> do, do you see that incredible picture of 2 Timothy? All because of fear. Timothy allowed fear to creep in and what was burning was now an ember. That is a, a pretty fascinating insight to me. And I'm not making this up. It's clearly in the text. 2 Timothy chapter 1, it's there. He's genuinely saved. He's genuinely had experiences with the Lord after being saved or even gifts were being imparted to him. People have prophesied into his life and he is now crippled with fear. Now this word for fear that Paul uses here is not the typical word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. I mentioned this morning how identity should dictate behavior. Behavior does not define us. Our identity should dictate behavior. Now this is what's interesting about this word. It was a word that was used because it's no, used nowhere else in the New Testament. But it was used outside of the New Testament to describe what soldiers would do in the heat of battle when it was getting too difficult, they would withdraw. It was a word that referred to timidity. I think that's what the translation that was read from the front speaks of him being timid. So it was a word that described what soldiers did in battle. Now this is what's so beautiful. How does Paul describe Timothy in chapter 2 verse 3? What does he describe Timothy as? A soldier. A soldier of Jesus Christ. When Ezekiel saw God raise the dry bones to life, they became an exceedingly great army. That's what God is about producing in us. Believe it or not, I'm looking at soldiers. You mightn't feel it, you mightn't think it, you might be crippled by so many other aspects, but according to the biblical pattern, and according to Paul here writing to Timothy, he is suffering from timidity, he is shrinking back from the heat of battle. Now we don't know the particular reasons as to why Timothy was fearful, but if the passage that we looked at in chapter 3 verses 1 to 9 was anything to go by, I would say an intimidating culture out there that's hell-bent on self-destruction, false teaching entering the church and having to correct opponents, that's quite a big, bit of a big deal. I'm, I'm sure there were some of the reasons why Timothy had shrunk back. And when fear creeps in and we shrink back and the, the, the fire goes down, you know what it results in? Here is the fact of the matter. Too many people in church never go back past the potential stage. They never go past the potential stage. What's your reason? Is it afraid to be hurt? Is it afraid to be hurt again? Is it afraid to be judged? Is it afraid to be vulnerable? And I've got really good news for you tonight. The Lord does not want to leave his people in that state. Because notice that Paul actually says to Timothy, now I want to move on to the second point, not only the crippling effects of fear, but secondly notice that there is a call to fan into flame. 
Now the word, I mean the imagery is quite straightforward, isn't it? The, the picture is literally an embers that can be rekindled again. And please don't, don't misunderstand here. This is not the fire of saving faith. Remember, Paul is absolutely sure that within Timothy is a sincere faith. The issue is not his faith. He's going to be an, an, a not, not a Christian. He's not going to lose his salvation. The issue for Timothy is, was he going to pull back from his role in discipling others as a disciple? It's service he's holding back in, not salvation. So, that, that, so Paul is not concerned about Timothy's salvation. He's concerned about Timothy's service. And his service is being affected because he's allowed fear to come in. Because he's allowed a fear to come in, that original passion and service to throw himself into the ministry is now actually causing him to peel back. And he's called to fan into flame the gift of God. Now, there's a, this, listen, commentators will debate whether this is referring to a spiritual gift or this is referring to the actual person of the Holy Spirit himself. Now, I take it to be the latter. And, and in fact, there's not, it's, it's potato potato really because 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit himself in the church. So, you know, well, that's not a hill that I would particularly die on. But this, what this passage shows us is this. If the Holy Spirit can be quenched, which means to put cold water on a fire, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives can also be inflamed. <laughs> if he can be quenched, it can be also inflamed. Now let's be really careful what we do not mean here. To talk about inflaming the Holy Spirit does not mean that he is Mr. Reluctant and we need to give him a little bit of a coaxing right? We're the ones that need the coaxing. But there's clearly a command here in which we align in a participatory role of his work in our lives based on union with Christ, based on the finished work of the gospel, that we are literally able to fan and to flame his influence in our lives. Um, and by the way, and here's the thing, he is willing to be inflamed. He is, John Owen says the Holy Spirit is willing to come to us, but he does not expect to be shown the door. He expects to be welcomed. He's willing to, in fact, look at, I mentioned this this morning, look at verse one. All of this is flowing from something. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. This is part of the life. Listen, friends, the power of the Holy Spirit is your birthright as a child of God. It's your birthright. Jesus died that you would drink of living water. And part of the birthright of the power of the Holy Spirit is to, to get rid of the roadblocks that are in our hearts. And one of the most prominent roadblocks is crippling fear where we believe lies about ourselves and service that keep us back. And the Holy Spirit loves to conquer them. He loves to invade that. He loves to remove the roadblocks. So what does fanning into flame look like? And there's probably lots of different answers I can give, but one of the answers that I want to give here in the immediate context is actually not that glamorous. And it almost sounds like you're just repeating yourself, but Paul kind of just repeats himself. And I'm just going to allow the, an almost circular reasoning of the Holy Spirit to just do something here. Look at verse 8. Therefore, in light of fanning into flame, in light of the fact that you've been given not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control, therefore, don't be ashamed. Well, hold on a minute. I'm crippled with fear, but now I'm not so... But don't, be, don't be embarrassed. Now, why would Paul say this to Timothy? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
here's the thing, right? Um, the, the sea does not part until you dip your toe in the Jordan. If you live by your feelings, you would never, ever do any. You would do very little. But if you act by faith, allow the feelings then to be refined and transformed. God's not giving you a spirit of fear, Timothy. Fan in the flame, therefore, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. If Jesus really is who he said he is, if he's really burst out of that tomb, if he's really the risen, exalted Messiah, if he sits on a throne and rules all things, if he has made you yours, not only for now or for eternity, don't be ashamed of that. And what I love about this is that Paul gives us a little bit of a demonstration as to what that looked like in a little, in some um, young man's life. In, in verse 16 and 17, we read of a man called Onesiphorus. And notice what Onesiphorus did and why he did it. Paul's in prison, but this guy called Onesiphorus visited him. And Onesiphorus, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now, do you see the connection? Timothy, don't be ashamed of me and my chains. Now, let me tell you about someone who was not ashamed of my, me and my chains. He was a guy called Onesiphorus, and he came, and he deliberately looked out for Paul, and when Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus, whatever you call him, I keep on saying his name wrong, whatever his name is, that fella, when he visited Paul, what did, what did he do for Paul? He refreshed him. You could almost argue he discipled him. He was a source of encouragement. Here's the great apostle Paul, but even apostles got discouraged. Even apostles got weary. And it took this young man who was not ashamed, who was allowing the fire of service to burn. And he was willing, listen, you want to, wanted to visit another Christian in prison and people are overhearing your conversations. Guess what you're identifying yourself as? You're identifying yourself as another Christian with potentially ending up in prison as well. But this young man, not ashamed, moved forward in the prison. If the power of God can make Onesiphorus visit Paul in prison, it could give you the power to speak up every now and then your lunch break at work. Or to text that unbeliever friend and ask them to church. Or to be open and honest about your struggles in your city group. Just can. Um, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. That's in the Bible. I'm not making it up. You can read about it in Ephesians 1. Um, I want to, on our final point, we'll see the grounds in which we can fan in the flame the gift of God. I can't stress enough how willing God is to bring you on leaps and bounds. I, I, he, you know when, um, when the Lord was, it was clearly a test when he was saying to Moses, you know, I've really had enough with the children of Israel. I'm just gonna, I'll, st I'll just, just you, forget the rest of them. And Moses starts to argue with the Lord. And he says, one of his arguments to the Lord is, what will everyone think, the Egyptians and all, that you took us out of Egypt, but you, didn't, you couldn't bring us in? Um, and that, that is beautiful, isn't it? Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God doesn't take you out of Egypt just to kill you in the wilderness. He loves, he, he will bring you into the promised land. And sometimes, and I don't simply mean glory, and I do mean glory, but at the same time, there's milk and honey to be enjoyed now. And 
one of the things that we need to be rid of is our sentimentalizing of what Egypt used to be like. Um, some of you are still remembering the garlic that you had in the, oh, the garlic was lovely. I mean, they forgot, they forgot there was like, they were being beaten by the Egyptians and being mistreated. I don't know why I said all that. It must have been for someone. It had absolutely nothing to do with what I was talking about. <laughs> Thank you, Holy Spirit. I trust that was for someone. <laughs> More, Lord. Uh, like Danny Hinn next, take my top off and beat you with it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on thoroughly to the surprising manifestation of power. Now, I don't know what picture comes to your mind when you hear power of the Holy Spirit. And it, it probably varies. You might think immediately of power encounter. You might think of healing. You might think of deliverance. You might think of certain spiritual gifts. And all of that has its place and all that is wonderful and beautiful and to be sought after. We often don't think of um, the power of the Holy Spirit in the mundane and the ordinary. And yet, a high percentage of Christian discipleship and activity works itself out in the ordinary, in the dutifully. So uh, look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Paul, Paul says now, he's already told him the fan in the flame, he's given you a spirit of power to share in suffering by the power of God in verse 8. In verses 13 and 14, we read, um, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. And I'm using the ESV. That phrase is critical. That you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Good deposit in this context is the gospel content as ministry um, that he has been entrusted with. Okay. Now, that phrase that you have heard from me. Paul's going to use that again at the beginning of chapter 2 and notice the connection. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Now, do you see the connection? Paul, you have heard stuff from me. And this is what I want you to do, that you've heard stuff from me. By the power of God, guard what you have heard from me, but more than guard it, by the strength that is in Christ Jesus, pass that on to others, that they in turn might pass it on to others. See the contagious discipleship. You've heard from me, Timothy. I have discipled you. I have poured into you now. By the power of God, guard that. Be a good steward of what you have been given, but you're not simply guarding it and stewarding it. You're pouring it out now into others that they in turn will pour it out into others. And that, that's, there's a, there's a contagious discipleship. There is the fanning into flame. And then Paul, when Paul says that, Paul then in verses three to seven gives three illustrations that should mark and characterize Timothy's discipleship methodology, if you like. What are you going to be like, Timothy, as you're engaging in discipling others, pouring your life into others? You fanned in the flame, you're engaged again, you're no longer holding back. What are you going to be like? You're going to be like a soldier. You're going to be like an athlete. You're going to be like a farmer. This is all in the context of strength in Christ, guard by the Holy Spirit. It's very normal, isn't it? It's a surprising manifestation of power. 
But the power of the Holy Spirit wants us to be like soldiers obeying our commanding officer. And do you see how he says not getting involved in civilian affairs? What's that? That's um, being distracted. We looked at that this morning, chapter 2, quarreling over words and all of those things, singularly focused. Being like an athlete committing according to the rules and like a farmer. You know what all of these illustrations show? Um, I've, I've not, I mean, I've, I've had the odd conversation with, um, no, I'm not sure that story, it's a bit too controversial. The, um, I've, I've, I've spoken to some, uh, I don't know many athletes, I've met some people who've served in various armed forces or soldiers. Um, I know a number of farmers, farmers history in my own family are from Enniskillen. Um, I'll tell you what all of those three things have in common. You have to put an awful lot of effort and work to see results. And do you know what our biggest problem is of living in an instantaneous digital age? I'll tell you what it is, and we apply this to our spiritual life. We want maximum spiritual fruit from minimal spiritual effort. Because we want everything now. We want with anything with a click of a finger. But there is a principle in the kingdom of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. And the power of the Holy Spirit, this is a surprising manifestation of power because what, what this is, what Eugene Peterson in another context refers, you know what every Christian needs? A long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase. A long obedience in the same direction. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives on a day-to-daily basis. To waken up every day and to know that you're a soldier of Christ, to work hard like an athlete and like a farmer. And I'm sure there are days and weeks in which farmers are doing their work or athletes are doing their training and sometimes today in training felt more difficult than it did, you know, two days ago after my rest day. I should feel a bit freer and looser and fast. I'm sure there's seasons where it just doesn't, they just don't feel it. Oh, doing all that hard work on the land, is it really going to be worth it? Well, I want you to notice what he says in verse 6. No, do you see the promise in verse 6? It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Who ought. Paul is actually revealing a little bit of a... He's teasing Timothy with a promise here. If you engage with this wholeheartedly, there's crop to be shared in. You will see fruit. You will see fruit. I don't remember an awful lot about, I, when I was inducted into the pastorate, I don't remember an awful lot about the induction service. I only remember one part of the sermon that was preached at my induction service. It's when the pastor, who I was discipled under, cut my teeth early in ministry under his um, ministry, and he was preaching, don't even know what he preached on, don't know the text, don't know anything else but this moment. And he looked at my wife and I and he said, Johnny and Sandra, let your ministry be like the hokey cokey. He says, put your whole self in. <laughs> Thought I remember that. Put your whole self in. Soldier, athlete, farmer. And what's so beautiful about this is that we've all got our own individual context, yeah? So what, what it might look like for one is not necessarily the other. Look at verse 7. Think over what I say, 
for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What we're covering over this weekend, there is a calling upon your life as an individual before the Lord to think over what we've been saying and the Lord will give you understanding on how to practically work this out in your life. Here's, here's another promise. So yes, there's a surprising manifestation of power. Yes, we, we, we do not want to be held back by fear. Yes, we want to throw our whole selves in. But allow the liberty and freedom of the Spirit in your own personal context to work that out on how that is going to look like. But listen, we need to end by seeing the grounds upon which all of this is happening and it is the gospel constantly revisited. Let me uh, zoom out again and show you the flow of thought. In verses 3 to 7, Paul addresses Timothy's timidity and calls him to fan and to flame. In verses 8 to 10, he is, why? Because he's not to be ashamed because of the gospel and reminds him of what God accomplished through the gospel in verses 8 to 10. He then calls Timothy to guard the gospel, to pass this on to future generations in verse 13 through to chapter 2, verse 7, as he engages in ministry like a soldier, like a farmer, like an athlete. And then, you know, I love verse 8. Like Paul writes this to a pastor. Remember Jesus Christ. Why, why would he do this? Why would he go for fan in the flame, remember the gospel, pass the gospel on, but remember Jesus Christ? Why? Because here's why. We can be so passionate about just doing stuff in church that we forget the absolute ultimate reason why we're doing it in the first place. It's not remember your own ego. It's not remember your own gifts. It's not remember a platform. Uh, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. In all that you do, remember Jesus Christ. Timothy's calling to step up, to fan in the flame, to fully engage in gospel discipleship is literally enveloped. It's literally soaked in gospel truth. So let me, let me end by telling you why you can fan in the flame the gift of God. Let me tell you why fear and shame and embarrassment and holding back can be, you can be freed from and you can see broken off your life. You see, in verses 9 and 10, you see, because Jesus saved you by sheer grace, according to God's good purpose, your works and service didn't get you in, so your works and service will never kick you out. You'll have bad days serving the Lord. You'll have times where Oh, but what if I mess up? What if I make a mistake? You know, the, you know the times where you thought you did it well? You probably made a mistake there as well. If you're saved by sheer grace, if you are the Lord's, if Christ really brought immortality to life, abolished death, if Christ really did that, are, are you really, really going to worry about whether you get your words right, sharing the gospel with that non-Christian friend? You might stop. Are you really worried? Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? They ask you a question and you say, I'll get back to you next week. I don't know the answer now. Like, Jesus isn't having a mental breakdown on the throne because you couldn't answer a question in the moment. <laughs> He's not relying upon you. He's not. Be free to imperfectly make strident steps forward in kingdom advancement. Uh, last time I checked, the only type of people that Jesus can use are sinners and weak people. That's all he's got. Last time I checked. There's no superheroes in the kingdom. Let me tell you why you can fan in the flame. Are you, are you, free, are you afraid to 
You're afraid to be vulnerable with others. Look to the cross where he was vulnerable for you. Look to him stripped and beaten and bloodied. And if his vulnerability was the very means to your healing and your salvation, how much of a healing ministry could the Lord bring through your vulnerability in the context of the body of Christ? Because the very thing that you're afraid to talk about, you can guarantee there's other people thinking the exact same thing and they've probably got it as well. And if it's to do with a past of suffering and difficulty here, God will never waste even our wounds. He will make sure that ministries come out of wounds because with the comfort that we've received, we'll then be able to comfort others. There's always a redemptive power even in our suffering and difficulties. Are you afraid to have your heart hurt? Looked him in the cross where they literally exploded his heart with a spear. He had his heart burst for you. Are you afraid you'll mess up? Look at verse 12. There's a translation issue with verse 12. It could either refer to God guarding that which he has entrusted to us or God guarding what we have entrusted to him. Actually, it doesn't really matter. You know what I love about the verse? God's the one doing the guarding. So Timothy's called to guard the gospel, but only in the backdrop of the fact that God's going to be guarding what's already been entrusted to Timothy. Listen, folks, it's a win-win situation with Jesus. It's a win-win situation. This is why you and I need to constantly revisit the gospel. Flames burn brightest. The fanning and the flame burns brightest when we gaze upon the glory of the Lord revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ and how he utterly and completely poured himself out for a sinful humanity. And as we are united to him and dwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives as well, to model and to mirror the very pouring out of the Son of God that give us salvation in the first place. Let me end on a quote by Rosaria Butterfield. It's a different context. It's in the context of opening up your home and hospitality, but homes are a great place for discipleship, coffee, dinner, gospel, and all of that. Instead of feeling sidelined by the sucker punches of post-Christianity, Christians are called to practice radically ordinary hospitality to renew their resolve in Christ. Too many of us are sidelined by fears. We fear that people will hurt us. We fear that people will negatively influence our children. We fear that we do not even understand the language of this new world order, least of all its people. We long for days gone by. Our sentimentality makes us stupid. We need to snap ourselves out of this reverie. The best days are ahead. Jesus advances from the front line. The best days are ahead for Dublin. Best days are ahead for Christ City Church. Believe that. Fan in the flame, pour yourself in, put your whole self in, and may Jesus radically pour his blessing as you would do these things by faith.